Wednesday night when I went home from our prayer service and turned on the news as I was getting ready to go to bed, I was stunned. I, my, my, I, I was stunned. I wasn't really sure what was going on when I heard it was a prayer service where people were killed and he'd sat there for an hour. I was stunned and I, I thought, not again. Uh, not again. Here we go again. It should stun us. Um, sometimes it doesn't stun us. It should stun us. It stuns us uh, when we just came from something where that violent thing just took place. And all of the struggles of our life sometimes stun us. And one of the things about the book of Ruth is that it is the story the true story of just ordinary life, ordinary people's life, the, the difficult things of their life, just ordinary country folk, just people who lived outside the suburbs, kind of small town, just like us. And when we look at the struggles of the world and we look at the struggles of our own life, sometimes we just see them so close up. We just think, what is God doing in these situations? What's going on? Well, this week, my mom's moving to a different house, so I was getting some of stuff from hers, and I was going through some of the, my, my dad's stuff, and I found this uh, in some of his stuff. This was, he's had, he had this for years. I'm not even sure what it is. I don't know if it's part of a camera or uh, some magnifying thing, but all I remember when I saw this was that we used to play with this when we were little. We'd take um, these little things that we could find, we'd put it under there on his desk, and we'd examine it, we'd magnify it. We thought it was the coolest thing in the world because it had a little stand on it. You know, sometimes, with our own lives, we need to pull back. Because if you look right at what you're going through, if you see all the things that you're struggling with, you just, you're so close to it, it's so magnified to you, that you can't figure out what is going on with my life, what's God doing in my life, how is this all going to work? And so sometimes we just need to pull back a little bit and get a bigger perspective. And we like this when this happens. I was watching some of the U.S. Open last night. And we watch, we like the big Goodyear blimp up top. And we like how they can zoom straight in. And we like how they can zoom straight out and get a bigger perspective of what's going on. And that's what the book of Ruth does for us. And that's what the book of Ruth chapter 4 especially does for us. The whole book of Ruth is really this zoomed in, magnified look at one family of the nation of Israel and then zoomed out in big perspective for us to see what's God doing in all this to help us see the picture of our own lives. The book of Judges talks about the nation of Israel where all the people, the Bible says, were doing what they wanted to do on their own. The book of Judges ends in Judges 21-25 and says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That was just what was going on. Just people were doing what they wanted in their own eyes. It was just chaos and problems and pain and suffering and people trying to figure it all out. And then in the midst of that, the book of Ruth is written. Those were the last words of Judges 21-25, and the first words of Ruth 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So it was in the days of the judges, when things were chaotic, things were struggling, that all of a sudden God zooms in and he gives us the book of Ruth so that we can zoom out and get a big picture of what's going on. What is, when we... See things in our own life, when we hear the struggles that we see on TV, 
We have to ask ourselves sometimes the question is, where is God? And how long, O Lord? All those things come up over and over. But then God tells us that he is absolutely faithful. And Ruth tells us that God is faithful. And God is faithful to his promises, which is what the book of Ruth helps us get a handle on. He shows us that God is faithful to his promise, that he made a promise to Abraham. He made a promise to the nation of Israel that he would preserve them. And in the midst of all the chaos of the judges, the book of Ruth, a short little book, is telling us God's faithful to his promises. And God being faithful to his promises is what gives us the handles that we need to keep perspective on our own lives. I mean, this is a little short Story. It's an actual true event, but it's a very short little account. It doesn't take very much long, much time at all to read. And we are not a culture of readers in our society. Many people are not readers. So, so don't look at it that way. It's more also for us, it's almost like a little video that was, God has given us, a short little video clip that we need to make go viral in our hearts and minds so we can see God's perspective. It seems sometimes in life and in the world that God is hidden, but he is not hiding. And Ruth tells us that. In the last chapter of Ruth, where it seems like God's been pretty silent all the way through, guiding all the different circumstances. But in this last chapter of Ruth, God is bursting through in these final pages. And we're going to look at it with three words. Committed, compassion, and completion. Ruth has, was told by her mother-in-law, hey, go over there. You've been, you've been gleaning in the field of Boaz for a while now. He's one of our kingsmen's redeemers. He's a, he's a good guy. And you know what? You've been taking care of me. I need to find you some rest for your life. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go. You, just, you sneak up behind him in the middle of the night, lay at his feet, see what happens. Whatever he tells you to do, you do. She goes and basically goes off script, and she proposes to him. And Boaz is overwhelmed by that, and he says, I'm so thankful that you didn't choose a young guy. You chose me, so I absolutely would like to marry you. And the morning comes up. And he says, but you've got to get out of here because we don't want people to think scandalously of you. So he gives her about 80 pounds of grain, sends her off, and her mother-in-law walks up and says, uh, so what happened? What happened? And that's where we left it about two weeks ago. And Naomi says to Ruth, just wait. He is not going to rest until he gets this matter settled. And then Ruth, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, says this, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate. And sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would retell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. It's the greatest deal in the world. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi... You also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own 
inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Boaz wanted Ruth, but there was another guy a little bit closer in line who, who was, could be the, the kinsman redeemer. And he, had, he followed, Boaz was an honorable man of character. He wasn't going to go outside of what God's will for his life was. So he decided, I'm going to try to do something. And he, he shows up at the gate where they would start early in the morning. And usually there was like a couple of gates. So the gates of the city were kind of like a courtyard. People did their business there. And it says he, he shows up early in the morning and behold, which the author wants us to see, hey, all of a sudden the guy that he's looking for just happens to, to walk by. It didn't just happen to walk by. This is God's providence moving all the way through in this story. But there's the guy that needs to see. And Boaz sits down with him and says, hey, this is the deal. I want to marry. I, I, I want to marry this woman, Ruth, but you're closer to her than I am legally, you have first say because there's the field and whoever buys the field. And so the guy's like, I'll buy the field. This is good. He wants to increase his property so he can pass it on to his children because that's what the nation of Israel was all about. You wanted to perpetuate your family line. The worst thing that could happen to you was exactly what had happened to Naomi. She was about to be extinct. Her family line was about to be extinct. And Boaz didn't want that to happen. But was, was absolutely committed to making sure that did not happen. And he talked to the guy, and Boaz knew this guy's name. He knew who he was. The author of this book knew who the guy's name was. But when it says friend, the actual translation in the Hebrew of that is basically so-and-so. This Mr. So-and-so. It doesn't state his name at all. There's been theories of why, why wouldn't they just say his name? They, they knew who he was. It could be because they want to embarrass him later on to let his families know that they gave up the greatest deal ever. But also because this guy wasn't as committed to Boaz was. His name doesn't mean anything to us. There was no commitment in him. He wasn't willing to follow uh, his right, his legal right. He wasn't that committed to doing the right thing. So the Bible doesn't even mention him. He's just Mr. So-and-so. He's not committed at all, but Boaz is absolutely committed, and Boaz is a picture of God for us, because God is actually absolutely committed to you and I. And God is absolutely committed to you and I. We are not a culture and not a society that believes much in commitment. David Brooks, who's a New York Times columnist, author, you might have seen on TV probably, uh, just a couple weeks ago, he, he spoke of the Dartmouth graduation, and he gave the address, and his excellent address, and in his address, he's partly through, he said this to these Dartmouth graduates. He said, we are not a society that nurtures commitment making. We live in a culture that puts a lot of emphasis on individual liberty and freedom of choice. We live in a society filled with decommitment devices, tender, Instagram, Reddit, the entire internet is commanding you to sample one thing after another. Our, our phones are always beckoning us to shift our attention span. If you can't focus your attention for 30 seconds, how can you make a commitment for life? And David Brooks was challenging these highly intelligent Dartmouth graduates and saying, listen, without commitment in your life, 
You're not going to be successful. We aren't that committed. And these are the elite of our society graduating from Dartmouth. You, you have to do a lot of work in high school to get to go to Dartmouth and to graduate. To graduate. And from that group, that we're, there is a lack of commitment. We are not a committed people, but God is absolutely committed to us. And Boaz was absolutely committed to Ruth. So what are you committed to? What is it that you are absolutely committed to? Someone said that my generation in the 40s was the me generation. And recently they said the millennials, are they called them the, the me, me, me generation. And every generation picks on the other generation because the next generation is going to say we're the quadruple generation. Um, and it, the me, 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 me generation. Every generation does that because one generation wants to look better than the other generation. So my generation would never do that. We were never that way. Uh, those young generations just getting worse and worse. And there is some truth to that. Even the secular world sees that, that there is this crumbling. But what are you committed to? What are you committed to? Are you committed to God? Are you committed to his people? Are you committed to God's purposes in your life? Boaz was absolutely committed. He's a picture of God to us. This is God saying, listen, in the, in the midst of great darkness with the judges, there was an ordinary family that had meant nothing, and I was absolutely committed to them. I'm going to rescue them. I was absolutely committed to this foreigner, this Moabite woman, the God of the universe. He's absolutely committed to them. What are you committed to? Elizabeth Elliot, who died this past week, who was the wife of Jim Elliot, a missionary down in the Uccas, 50-some years ago was killed, him and four other missionaries. She spent the rest of her life serving God. She went back to that tribe. She came back. She, she reached many of them. She wrote 24 books. She was a no-nonsense kind of woman. And Elizabeth Elliot said this. She says, I have one desire now, to live a life of reckless abandon for the Lord, putting all my energy and strength into it. She was absolutely surrendered to what God wanted for her life. Boaz was absolutely surrendered to what God wanted for his, his life. And God has absolutely given himself to be committed to us. And so is Ruth. I mean, being committed to God is doing what Ruth said. Say, so I think I'm committed. I, I'm not sure if I'm committed. But this is what it means to be committed to God. Ruth 1.16. Ruth said this about her conversion and her commitment. She, but Ruth said, when her, Naomi said, go back home. Go back to your, to the, to your family. And she said, no, I'm willing to give all of that up because I want to follow Yahweh. I want to follow the God of the nation of Israel. She had nothing to gain, nothing. There was nothing about her, but she just, she was willing to give up everything. And it said this in Ruth 1.16, but Ruth said, she said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. I mean, is that look anything like your commitment to God? Does that look anything like your commitment to his people? Does that look anything like your commitment to his purposes for your life? Or are you saying, no, I'm just going to do it my way and me? 
God's not like that. God is absolutely committed to us. And Boaz showed us that. All through this story, God's saying, I'm committed to people. I'm committed to you. Will you be committed to me? Then God shows his unbelievable compassion through Boaz. And verse 7 through 13 says, Now this was the custom. So the guy said, I can't do this. I, I can't buy the land. And I can't marry the Moabite woman. I, I can't perpetuate her children because if I do that, if I take, if I take her in, because he's asking, he's asked to provide for them. And what if the child that she raises up, that will, that would cut into his children's inheritance and it would just cost him too much. He said, I just can't do it. As much as I want the land, I can't marry the Moabite, and I can't further her, so I'm just not going to be able to do it. And Boaz does it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilean and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. He redeemed her. He bought her. He bought this absolute foreigner. The woman who should have had really no right, a Moabite woman who was, many Moabite women were cursed and caused great damage to the nation of Israel in the Bible. But he he bought this, bought her, redeemed her because he had great compassion for her. And God used him and he blessed him and he gave him a son and it really speeds up real quick. They got married He went into her, they had a baby. Nine months or more flies in verse 13. Really quick. God was absolutely compassionate. Boaz is unbelievably compassionate to Ruth, which is a picture of how God is to us. Even in the midst of your most difficult circumstances, whatever they are right now. Someone said this, We must never limit the purposes of God as though he were doing only one thing at a time and only one person and one place at a time, here and now in me. Sometimes we can be deeply puzzled by the circumstances of our lives. What is God doing? Too frequently we focus attention on ourselves as though the answer lay within our individual lives. As if we were the central key to interpreting the plan of the God of the universe. God is intimately aware of us and deeply concerned of our welfare, but his providential purposes, which include me, do not center on me. 
As though what he is doing in me could be isolated from everything else he is doing. No, God's purposes crisscross and zigzag and cross-fertilize one one believer's life and that of an unbeliever, or one believer's experience with another believer. He is always simultaneously and contemporaneously doing several things in several lives. There is a marvel and divine beauty of the divine mosaic of providence. Although it is often beyond the powers of the naked eye to see it, until we wear biblically crafted lenses and the spectacles through which we see and interpret life, which is what repentance is all about. Repentance is all about getting a different view, putting on different glasses, seeing things differently. You've been seeing it one way, and it's not going correctly, and God says, here, look at it a different way, and then follow that way. God is absolutely compassionate that he does that for us. He does that in all our circumstances, all the difficulties that we may be going through, all the difficulties we see. He is weaving an unbelievably deep plan that we may never fully know close up, which is why he gives us the book of Ruth, to help us to pull back a little bit and see the big perspective of what may be going on, that God is good. He's absolutely compassionate in our lives. The Bible says in Psalms 139, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. We read that about babies that are being born, and our church is ready to experience kind of a baby boom here pretty soon. And you will hear me say that a lot, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. But that's not changed since the time you were born. If you're 85, or if you're 65, or if you're 55, it's not changed. You are still wonderfully and fearfully made. And that same God is guiding every aspect of your life, even in your 50s and in your 60s and in your 40s and in your 30s. God's never stopped seeing you as fearfully and wonderfully made. And he deeply cares about you. Johnny Erickson Tata, who was a girl just going out for a swim a number of years ago, the night before she dyed her hair blonde, she was a brunette, she decided, you know, I'm going to dye my hair blonde. She dyes her hair blonde the night before, goes swimming the next day, dives in, breaks her neck. And the only reason her sister was able to see her in the murky water is because her hair was blonde. That's God's providence over Johnny Erickson's life. And she would say this, and she did say this. She says, God permits things that he hates to accomplish something that he loves. Even though life may seem out of control, God controls all suffering by his sovereignty. The Bible calls suffering a mystery for a reason. We can't see the big picture, which is why he says we need to trust him, because he's unbelievably compassionate. He's absolutely caring. He redeems us. He's willing to pay the price for us, whatever it is that's overwhelming you right now. God is not ever stop seeing you as wonderfully and fearfully made with great compassion. But there is great evil in the world. There is great wrongs in the world that we can't understand. There are great things that happen in our lives that are evil and unjust. And it's great that God is committed to us. And it's great that he has compassion to us. But if all we had was a committed God and a compassionate God, we could still suffer deeply and still not be with any hope. 
But we have something more than just a committed and compassionate God. We have a God who completes things, who absolutely completes things. Verse 14 says this, Then the woman said to Naomi, after this baby was born, then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you on this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. Has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. And David fathered Jesus down the line. And Ruth is in the line of Jesus. This foreigner woman that should have no right to be in the nation of Israel's line is the grandmother of Jesus, because God is committed to us, God is compassionate to us, but God completes things. He comes all the way through. Obed means servant. He was the servant of God, and that's why the lady said, listen, Naomi has a son. It's an unusual thing to say. That's why I say the book of Ruth is really about Naomi's story all the way through. This ordinary woman. Not Boaz had a son, not Ruth has a son, but now, finally, Naomi has a son. She's not going to be extinct. Her family line is not going to be wiped out. She left Bethlehem full. She came back empty. And a committed, compassionate God completed it, and he made her full again. And the women even knew this, and they said, I've given you seven sons, which is the perfect number of completion and fullness. Obed was their redeemer, and through Obed, let's not get so familiar with this story, we aren't overwhelmed with it. Through Obed, Jesus was born. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't know anybody greater than Jesus. Is there anybody you know greater than Jesus? Is there anybody that you know greater than Jesus? Jesus gives power to the faint. Jesus increases strength. Jesus binds the brokenhearted. Jesus visits the widow. Jesus visits the orphan. Jesus goes to those in prison. In Jesus dwells all the riches of wisdom and power. The cross tells us there there is suffering. The cross tells us that Jesus understands suffering, that he was willing to go and die and suffer for us. But the cross also comforts us in our suffering because God knows what it's like. God knows what it's like to be in Charleston, South Carolina. God knows what it's like to be at your house this week when you suffer because of what Jesus did for you. And because of his resurrection... Jesus tells us that he conquers, that he completes suffering. It will not always be this way. There is an end coming to the suffering that we're seeing. All because Ruth met Boaz in a field. And Naomi 
persevered in faith. Ruth persevered and pursued God faithfully. And Boaz persistently obeyed God. And all of those things together, by the sheer divine providence of God, were designed so that through that real family, Jesus could be born. Because we have a committed, compassionate, and a God that completes things, which gives us unbelievable hope. It's not over yet. He's coming back for us. Our Father works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. Last Saturday night, I was sitting down with Danny Kirk and his daughter, Amy, and she, her three kids, and she had two high school kids, and then she had a young son named Danny Jr., who was five years old. So we're eating over at Jean's, and we finished at Jean's, and I said, to get the full sandwich experience again, you need to go over to Brenda's for ice cream. So we walked from Jean's over to Brenda's, and that was, we were walking, um, Danny Jr., he's five, or Danny, uh, little Danny's five, and so I'm talking to Amy, Danny's Kirk's daughter, and I said, so what does your husband do? And she says, and he said, uh, she goes, he works for he goes, I'm the, he's one of the bad guys. He's one of the TSA agents. Uh, he works at the airport down at Kansas City. Well, little five-year-old Danny, we're just walking over to Brenda's um, from Jeans, and he hears his mom say that his dad works at the airport. And just out of the blue where we're walking, he goes, my dad works at the airport? I didn't know my dad works at the airport. Wow, my dad works at the airport. It was the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> like All of a sudden, this five-year-old realized, wow. And his grandmother said to him, she goes, Danny, the reason you don't know your daddy works at the airport because he gets up early before you wake up and you don't see him leave. So you don't know what your daddy does. There's a connection. We don't always see what our good father daddy does. But he's always working. And the book of Ruth is to help us see that in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of everything that we are going through, our dad, God, our father, is working for us. And he's going to work all things out according to the purpose of his good will for us because he is absolutely committed. He's absolutely compassionate. And he finishes what he starts. And he's going to finish the good work in you. And it's only because... Only because of Jesus Christ. That God would love us so much to take on human flesh. To die on the cross. To live a life we couldn't live and die a death we could and be raised again. And we are a mess of people, but God still delights over us. Not because of any work that we do, but because of all the work that our Father has done for us. And really... All that we should say, at the end of Ruth, when we see the picture and we pull back from what it's really showing, this ordinary family, up close, magnified, it looks very messy and hard to understand. But when you pull it back and you see the full scope of Scripture and how it all lines up with God's plan, what we should say is, wow, oh great God, oh great Father, oh great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resist your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice. 
Did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me. Through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. Is that your desire? Do you, are you committed to loving a God who's committed, compassionate, and completing things in your life? Will you trust him? Will you just keep trusting him? When it's really magnified and you can't see his hand, when it's brought back, God's never hiding. He's always working for our good and his glory. And we know this because he did not spare his own son. He didn't spare Jesus for us. But he gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him give us graciously, give us all things?